I'm Martin Reed, Chairman of the BC Henderson Institute. Welcome to our Thinkers and Ideas podcast, where we explore important new books and ideas in business. And today joining me is Amy Edmondson. Amy doesn't really require much of an introduction, a very well-known thinker. She is a professor of leadership and management at Harvard Business School. She studies things like teaming, psychological safety, organizational learning, and more, I'm sure. She's a very recognized thinker, always appearing on the Thinkers 50 global ranking, and I think was number one in at least one year, 2021. And today she's here to discuss with us her new book, which is called The Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing, which comes out from Atria Books in September 2023. The book is a sort of framework to think about failure, the good side of it, the bad side of it, what we can do about it, what we can learn from it, how we can think productively about it. So it promises to be a very interesting discussion, I think. So congratulations on the book, Amy, and thank you for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. Delighted to be here. So let's go over some of the basic ideas in the book. I mean, I guess the the major thing in the book is this distinction between failing well and failing badly. Tell us about that. It starts with an appreciation for the fact that not all failure is alike, that there are, in fact, there's so much rhetoric out there in in business, especially in tech, you know, fail fast, fail often, failure is good, let's have a failure party, a failure resume, and so on. And it fails to make the distinction between the kinds of failures that we should celebrate and the kinds we most surely should not. So the answer to the question starts with appreciating the different kinds of failure. So tell us about some of those kinds, Amy. What are the uh, species of failure that it's important to distinguish between? Well, I've distinguished three archetypes, and one is the good kind, and I call those, maybe appropriately, intelligent failures. The other two are basic failures and complex failures. Basic failures are those single-cause, human-error-created failures that are in known territory and could readily have been avoided through better practices, maybe more vigilance, more more attentiveness. And many examples come to mind. Some are bigger, some are smaller. A basic failure might be sending an email meant for your sister to your boss, you know, but basic failure. Or it might be checking the wrong box in a financial transfer as happened at Citibank a couple of years ago accidentally transferring the principal rather than the interest to a corporate client, resulting in an $800 million loss that unfortunately the bank was not able to pull back. So that's a basic failure. One human error led to either a small or a large failure outcome. Complex failures are multi-causal. They are the kinds of failures that happen when multiple factors line up in just the wrong way. Any one of them on its own wouldn't have led to the failure, but because they co-occurred, they create a kind of perfect storm situation. For better or for worse, many healthcare failures in among hospitalized patients can be categorized as complex failures. Just that perfect lineup of multiple, just small, maybe process inadequacies coming together in just the wrong way. I think it goes without saying that we don't want to celebrate either of those kinds of failures. In fact, we want to learn and spread in organizations the best practices for for avoiding them. So let's draw a line in the sand and now go over to the other side, which is where the intelligent failures live. And intelligent failures are intelligent because they're the only way to get some valuable new knowledge that you need to make progress. 
you know, whether that's in a project, in your company, in your life, these are the, you could say, experiments in relatively new territory that you undertake hoping that they'll work, but alas, sometimes they don't. Those are intelligent failures. Those are great distinctions. That's a very vivid image of three very different types of failure. But I'm wondering whether we can always know at the time what we're dealing with, because the you know, apparently well-precedented production process may experience new conditions, may suddenly turn into something more complicated. If we're operating, you know, as with the Challenger disaster, slightly beyond the, the precedented parameters of a, of a piece of engineering or something, we may get cascading failures. And, and of course, we can even learn on routine things. So can we in practice know at the time? So the, the answer is yes, and you are pointing me towards something I have to admit, which is there's a lot of judgment involved. Nonetheless, so let's take Challenger. Challenger was a classic case of a complex failure. It was, in fact, by, you know, by all analyses, preventable with better practices. And I'll start with just one, you know, high quality conversations, the well-known dialogue that happened the night before and making that final decision about whether or not to launch in unusually cold temperatures the next morning was a classic example of a low quality conversation, one that disintegrated into an antagonistic debate rather than a thoughtful scientific discussion of what do we know, what do we not know, and what are the implications. That's not beyond us, but it is hard for us to to do that. Now, judgment, right? So because the real question you're asking is, how do you know when new is new? Or or even what is significant in the sense that then right. a thousand things we could attend to, but which one in this particular circumstance? Right. And and this is one actually I've done a very deep dive into the Columbia shuttle disaster as well as Challenger. And that one is a very good illustration of a complex failure where you could say, Yeah, there's two thousand things that could go wrong and one did. So just bad luck. Yes, that would be a perfect diagnosis if for not one thing. There was at least one, and we can point to more than one, but one in particular engineer who had a stomachache, one engineer who was actively worried and talking to his colleagues and trying desperately but ineffectively to get permission to get shuttle imagery, to get satellite imagery, to know for sure what might or might not have happened, right? So there are things we know this, right? There are things that come out of the blue and only hindsight can say, yes, there's the cause. But this wasn't one of them. So in a sense, we've been talking about the, the logic of the situations and the things that could be done. You, know, you mentioned the word judgment and, and quality of conversation. So let's go on to the human side of the problem, which is what is it about our biology or our psychology that makes us prone to poor judgment or the sort of behaviors that result in, in bad failures? Yeah, I think there is an aspect of our psychology that codes our perception of reality as reality itself. We have this erroneous sense that we know, right? That I see what's really going on. And by the way, if you see it differently, that's on you, right? You must be, you know, wrongheaded in some way. In other words, part of our psychology is this erroneous sense that we see what's really going on and it gets in the way of being you know, deeply and persistently curious about what's going on, because we just believe we sized it up already. And so then that leads us, that, that lack of curiosity sort of leads us into a mode that I would just call execution, 
we're in execution mode. We've got to get the task done. We've got to hit our targets rather than learning mode. And learning mode is not a bad mode to be in nearly all the time. I mean, you can take a break now and then, you know, maybe there are things you can do in your sleep, empty the dishwasher, for example. But for most of the things that matter in our lives, relationships, the work that matters in our lives, we should be in learning mode. We should be doing what we need to do, but deeply curious about what happens. It just all of our experience, our data. So what stops us from being, from being that? I mean, that sounds very sensible, but I mean... It does. It does. It's very sensible. But I, I think there's several things that stop us. And you know, the one, it starts with a little bit of the hardwiring. We just have these brains that maybe it's because there's just so much to take in. We our brains, you know, necessarily filter and then feel a sense of confidence that they see reality. And we are socialized in school and in early work experiences to favor knowing over learning, to believe that the ones who get ahead are the ones who have the right answer, not the ones who have the good questions or who take the risks and try things that then don't work and they, you know, learn quickly from those. So I think there's that combination of our of our wiring and our socialization lead us to behave in ways that are not optimal for a highly uncertain, complex, interdependent world. So presumably to uh, to overcome these tendencies, we need training and, and practice. As individuals, how can we hone better learning skills and avoid this illusion of, of knowing and mistaking a mental model for a fact? We have to do this on, on a couple of levels, and it starts with that personal most internal stance to try to embrace learning over knowing. I like to say to choose learning over knowing. Make that an active choice, you know, day in and day out. Just remind yourself, hey, much as I know, I may be missing something. Make that's not a depressing statement, that's a joyful statement because it's always a good day when you when you learn something new or when you're surprised by something and it's, you know, it expands your your awareness. So it starts with that commitment to choose learning over knowing. This, I think, falls nicely under the rubric of the growth mindset, beautiful work by Carol Dweck that says, you know, we are just better off when we think of ourselves as a work in progress, when we think of ourselves as getting better and smarter every day because of the experiences that we're having and our ability to pay attention to them. The other level that I think is really important, and I think it's a real opportunity, especially in the organizational context, is to master the art of diagnosing context. And it's just that quick pause to say, where am I? Like, what's at stake and how much uncertainty is there? And that to me is so simple, but so often not done with the result that we sort of respond uniformly or similarly in every situation, whether it's, you know, low stakes, high uncertainty, or, you know, high uncertainty, high stakes, and, and the other combinations as well. So figuring out, just ask yourself two questions. What's at stake here, right? If I make this experiment and it doesn't work out, am I bringing down an airplane or am I just going to be slightly embarrassed in a meeting? And what you're willing to do should be very different based on the answer to that question. What's at stake here? Where the stakes are financial, reputational, and, and human safety. And the other is how much uncertainty, or, or another way to put that is, how much is known about how to get the result we want in this context? It's a sort of high knowledge domain or a exploratory opportunity domain. So leaders are 
they're individuals, probably everything you just said would be applicable to them, but they have a, an additional leverage, which is they set the context for other people's behavior. You know, if a CEO listening to this said, well, I, I want to establish an environment, a culture where intelligent failure is predominant, what are the sort of institutional level or leadership level moves? Let's start with messaging. I think leadership messaging is so important. And to me, the, the leadership messaging that's often missing is the acknowledgement of both the challenge and the uncertainty that lie ahead. Again, that doesn't have to be a depressing statement. That can be a statement of great ambition and opportunity. But make it discussable, make it clear, emphasize it, because that is an implicit invitation to others to be the eyes and ears of the organization, to share what they see, to share their ideas. Because if you don't explicitly acknowledge uncertainty or challenge, people assume you think, industrial era mindset, that it's like in the bag, you know, that it's just, we got plans, we got targets, and they are ours for the taking. Rather than in an inspirational way, call attention to what we can do, but it will take all of us, right? That's the messaging. I'm not sure what you called it in the book, but there seems to be this theme of sort of modesty going through the book in that there's, there's a paradox that yeah. I think I spotted, which is that the way to reduce failure may actually be to acknowledge it, acknowledge our limitations, acknowledge what we don't know, which is a sort of a failure of confidence or a failure of certainty. But, but that sort of psychological failure, if you will, can prevent real failure. Am I? Am I... Yes. No, it's spot on. And it, it can feel like a paradox or like a contradiction. To say, and, and that's, you know, just for a particular area of research, the work on high reliability organizations, which is research that answers the question where how do inherently risky operations like air traffic control or nuclear power, how do they operate essentially safely all the time? And it, the answer isn't, oh, well, they just don't think about failure. No, the answer is they are consumed by thoughts of failure, but they, they put it out there so that it doesn't happen, right? They make it discussable. And by doing so, they are first and foremost making it easy for people to speak up. Because when you're sending that messaging that stuff could go wrong, just given the very nature of reality, you're basically lowering the threshold for people's willingness to speak up when they're not quite sure about something, you know, when they're in over their head or when they see an anomaly that, you know, may or may not be something important. But you want them to err on the side of speaking up. And so by essentially talking about failure, by talking about the possibility of failure and bad failure, right, you're, you're making it easier to speak up to prevent them. Also, by saying smart failures are the way we learn and make progress in new territory, you're also making it safe for people to engage in experimentation, which you sorely need to create the future. So all theories. I have a limit if, if I could explore an idea with you about a possible <laughs> limit to this, this way of looking at things, which is, I mean, it may be a psychological foible that we, we think we know, you know, we, we execute rather than ponder and learn. But there is a cost, of course, to, to saying, well, let me think about other alternatives. Let me pause. Let me assess the situation. And in some cases, that's probably very important. In other cases, I can imagine you don't want to waste time on that. And probably the role of a leader is to, in some ways, make make judgments about when to align the organization and blast forward, stop it getting you know, tied up in its own thoughts and reflections, and, and when to do the opposite. Yes. How does that fit with your theory? First of all, I'm a big believer in not wasting time. I'll just put that right, right out there. And then I'll just, maybe as an aside, but a relevant aside, say I've seen a lot more time wasted in organizations 
by sort of powering ahead with wrongheaded plans and thinking, you know, because people are sort of afraid to slow it down. And then you end up having to undo the damage, some of it more costly than others, right? So like real waste. So perhaps I'm arguing for a stitch in time, but still your question, maybe a more important lens to bring to it is when I say execution mindset versus learning mindset, I do not mean to imply one is doing and the other is pondering and then maybe later doing. In fact, there is a way of execution that I call execution as learning. And I don't mean to just be dancing around with words, but execution as learning is I'm fully in there doing it, but I'm doing it with a wide open eye to what the experience is saying back so that I can pivot as needed, even you know, smaller or larger. The wonderful Don Shuren wrote about this years ago in a remarkable book called The Reflective Practitioner. And he just noted these very real differences, you know, lawyers, physicians, architects, you know, people doing the same job as each other, but some were doing it in a way that he called reflection in action. You know, others were just doing it. And he argued that those who were beautifully attentive to what their phenomena were saying back to them were more effective in the, in the practice of their craft than the others. And I'm arguing for a kind of organizational or team level analog to that, right? There is a way of executing that's like, okay, here's the plan, let's do it, versus here's the plan, looks pretty good, but by the way, we know it's a hypothesis. Let's do it, but let's be as scientific as possible about the data that we are receiving as a result. So can we have thoughtful conversations in the face of uncertainty that are quick and are designed to get us to the best hypothesis? I think the answer is yes. Yeah, well, I think in a way that's, that's a very modern dilemma in the sense that experimentation learning are, if you suspend economics, they're a very good thing. But with the cost of capital increasing recently, I mean, now experimentation is not free. And in a way, we need to not only learn, but but learn effectively because running 10 pilots on is, is no longer tenable. Yes, efficiently. How, how can we make the process of learning streamlined? I mean, I guess you've already given part of the answer in terms of treat execution as learning. Are there other ways of, of sort of decreasing the cost of learning, let's say? Yes. You know, in fact, this brings me back to my, my definition of intelligent failure, that it's in new territory. It's in pursuit of a goal, an opportunity. It's driven by available knowledge. And it's as small as possible. And I think that the as small as possible part helps answer this particular question, which is experimentation is important in an uncertain world, but it, it should be only as big as it has to be to get the knowledge we want. So what that might mean in a market context would be, you know, talking to one customer is clearly not enough, but how many is enough? What's the size of the pool that we need to get data from to know whether this is working or proceeding well? And the answer will vary depending on the context, of course. But making sure you have a thoughtful answer to that question is the key to making experimentation efficient. Again, no waste, right? We don't, we will have some waste because you can't help it. But we want to minimize waste and maximize learning by experimenting at the right size. Can artificial intelligence help? I ask that not because it's the latest managerial fad, but because, in a sense, recognizing patterns in data sets bigger than the ones we can easily comprehend is one thing that machine learning can do. Have you, have you seen machine learning used 
productively to analyze potential for failure or failure contexts or learnable lessons or failure patterns? I have not seen that yet. And I think it's got to be happening or got to be on the way to happening because you're absolutely right. Artificial intelligence or, or machine learning are far better equipped than we fallible human beings to kind of take the knowledge we do have and articulate the key uncertainties that we could now test. So unfortunately, our time is limited. So if I may, I'd like to end up with a few more personal questions. In a sense, you're in the business of learning and uh, helping others to learn, perhaps implicitly before you wrote the book. But on reflection, how do you apply these, these frameworks and these ideas in, in your work? I think, first of all, as a, as a researcher, this is a, the essence of my work, right, is to be in new territory. You hope to be discovering or writing about something that hasn't been directly described or discovered before. So you're in new territory in pursuit of a goal. Maybe that goal is merely a published paper. And you have a hypothesis, of course. You've read the literature that comes before. Otherwise, you would not be well equipped to do that. So I've done all of that in my professional life. And each new experiment or study tries to be as small as possible and still have learning. So, so that's a formal answer. I would say more informally, I am very aware of my shortcomings in not always having a sufficient sort of tolerance for, for failure, good and bad, in not always having you know, enough curiosity. So I, I'm a, a daily work in progress. I'm ever striving to be more learning oriented, more curious, you know, less fragile, if you will. In psychology research, we often say it's me search. You know, I, I have studied the things that I struggle with. Yeah. I guess it's hard in the field of management, isn't it? Because as in other areas of, of science, I mean, people don't publish non-results. You know, we're, we're biased towards publishing the big theory that explains everything with perfect data, you know, confidently asserted. Exactly. So I, I, I guess in, in my field strategy, I think of useful lies. I mean, any simplification is a lie, mm -hmm. but it can be a useful one or it can be a, a temporarily useful one. So I, I always try to frame the question as, you know, even if it's not the whole truth, what is, what is a useful construct in this situation? Reminding myself that it's just a mental model. It's not a fact. Right. And that's it. It's like, I think that one statement is so powerful. Reminding myself it's a mental model, not a fact. That's what we don't do naturally. When and if we can get in the habit of doing that, then we are unleashed, I think, as, as learners, as better team members, as better leaders. Well, thanks so much for joining me and having this fascinating conversation with me today. And uh, good luck with the launch of the, the book, Amy. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking with you. I've been discussing Amy Edmondson's new book, The Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well, which came out in September from Atria Books. I think we've all heard of the mantras of failing fast and so on. But the thing about Amy's book is it helps us to distinguish clearly between productive and unproductive failure, gives it a scientific basis, and probably most importantly, gives us some habits and capabilities that we can cultivate as both individuals and as leaders in setting the right sort of environment for productive failure. As such, I think it's probably a very useful read for any business leader. If you like this conversation, make sure that you're subscribed on your favorite podcasting platform. And as always, we welcome your feedback to the BSG Henderson Institute.